HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Threes Brewing, a Brooklyn-based brewery making beers you'll want to revisit over and over again, carefully crafted and gladly shared. Visit Threes at 333 Douglas Street in Gowanus or learn more at threesbrewing.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. We are coming to you live from New Zealand, a very special episode. Uh, Kane Banbury, welcome to the show. Thank you, welcome. Uh, so Kane, you said that your grandmother changed your cooking. What were some of the dishes that you identify with her growing up? Uh, mince on toast, uh, two-minute noodles, and uh, takeaways on a Friday. What is a two-minute noodle? Uh, it's a noodle cooked for two minutes. Okay. I mean, that's very specific. Uh, What's it's a packet noodle. Uh, Maggi beef-flavored noodles with uh, white bread and uh, lots of butter. And what is the takeaway Friday? Uh, it would be a treat for the kids on Friday. So it's basically, um, I'm not going to say the company, but it's takeaways. Okay. And are there any lessons um, or traits from her cooking that you see in your cooking today? Uh, discipline. I got home. I was the first of five home, so I had to cook dinner for the family, starting at 4.30. So if that wasn't done at 6 o'clock and everyone got home, uh, there was a bit of trouble. And what would you cook for your family? Uh, roasts. Um, heavily microwaved stuff back then. Peas, carrots in a microwave. <laughs> Potatoes. No possum? No possum on the <laughs> <laughs> So you started your cooking career at the bottom, um, and what was the kind of first job or the first task that got you on the ladder? Uh, my first job, I lied my way into... Like most good like people most in the good industry. Um, I took a LaRousse book to work every day, and I went to the toilet about 50 times to read that book and go back and cook and replicate what the chef wanted. So you, they'd be like, cook this, you'd be like, oh my god, my stomach, yep, exactly. my stomach, Ugh, sensitive go to, boy. Gotta go to the toilet. And then I was busted one day because someone took my book out. Um, and what were the type of dishes that you were cooking at that time? Uh, that was French fusion, um, Ken O'Connell, basically, my first real job. 
So. And how did you meet Ken? Um, Ken came to a dinner where I did a cook-up and I was running the pass as a commie chef and he just basically said, I want you within two months. And um, what type of... And he was at the Hermitage. So what is the setting for that? What year? What place is that hold uh, in New Zealand? Cult? It was in Napier. So the first time I met Ken was Napier. Mm-hmm. Um, he was running Vitals restaurant. I was at a little old church restaurant. And, um, yeah, there we went. And from, you know, from cooking from there and cooking under Ken, what type of structure and discipline did it begin to instill in you? And what were the lessons you took um, from the settings of the Hermitage? Uh, timing. Um, the hierarchy in the kitchen was really installed in me there. Um, basically, timing was the big thing I got from Ken. Um, and think outside the square. Get, uh, if you see a box, break it, basically. And for those who don't are not familiar with it, what is the Hermitage and like what is the type of clientele and food that was being served there? Uh, the Hermitage is um, twelve hundred person a day food operation. Um, it's big. It's two point two million dollar profit turnover. Um, so it's big. It's a real big, big kitchen. There's fifty two in the kitchen, forty two chefs, ten kitchen hands, and. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough it's tough at the Hermitage. And what was the t- you said it was French food? What were the specialties there? Uh, specialties um, desserts, French fusion desserts mixed with New Zealand local produce, um, seafood heavy, real classical based sauces, a lot of butter, hell of a lot of butter, a lot of salt, and uh, with Ken's twist, real 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 fresh ingredients, um, local based, nature driven, and just knowing your Knowing where the food's coming from is the big thing with Ken that I got too. You've got to know where it's coming from. Let's go back to timing. Um, when you're serving 1,200 people a day, where does the prep start? You know, where, when do you start actually cooking for the people? Obviously, it's not in the kitchen. You know, where, do, where do you begin to control that much service? Uh, that starts at 4 a.m. for the bakers, but for us it starts at 8 a.m. Uh, the managers got together in the kitchen sous chefs head chefs and Ken got together and you'd lay out a plan for next week so it starts seven days ahead with him he's he's pretty uh, methodical he's got 300 days he's 300 days ahead he writes me news he knows what's coming in season and you know as his sous chef you're six months ahead knowing what he's expecting it was a seasonal menu seasonal yep how do you cook? I mean, most of the places, and as we've talked about before, you know, you have that size. You're cooking a certain amount of eggs. You're cooking a certain mm-hmm. amount of steak. How are you doing a seasonal menu and getting the right produce to be able to cook for those numbers? That's the connection he got. He went out. He visited farms. He'd fly to Auckland to go look for the Coomera suppliers. He'd go to Nelson to look for the Tamana suppliers. So he did a lot of the groundwork and set it up. Took him three months to set up, and after that, it just rolled. People were contacting him, telling, "I've got this coming. I've got this coming." They're like, "I've got like ten pounds of pig yep. ears." Yep, it's coming. I've got eggplants in three weeks. Do you want them? So, um, he, he was in cooking in New Zealand five years before that, so he had a real good base of the country. And then you eventually took over as an executive chef. Yep. So what was that process like? How did he hand over the reins? Uh, that was smooth. I'd cooked with Ken for four years before that, so that was really smooth. Really smooth. Just said, "Where you go." And how many years were you there as executive chef? Uh, 18, 19 months. Okay. Yeah. And what caused you to leave? Um, the environment. It's 300 staff living together. Um, nearest, nearest big town's three-hour drive. And you just don't get out, really. If you're on call, you're on call. If they need you for two days, on your days off, you just got to do it. Yeah, there's no, like, oh, but I have plans. I've got plans. I'm going to do something. No. 
it doesn't happen. And what were some of the, outside of timing, you know, once you got into the executive chef position, what were some of the lessons that you learned that you carried through with you? Uh, patience. <laughs> patience was a big one. Um, patience with your team or patience with being able to kind of just get through, you know, that pa- much service? Patience with the team. Um, that taught me a lot. You know, was, at 26, I thought it was all my way. Um, then I met the, the general manager, Nigel Harper, also. Like, it's that kind of changed me. It's not your way. It's everyone's way, kind of. You've really got to... Well, you've got three restaurant managers. You know, you've got two head chefs, four sous chefs, and myself. We all have to come together. Whereas I went in there as a sous chef thinking it's our, it's our way. It's money Ken's food, you know, trying to install that in everyone. And that, I learned that very fast. Very fast. Once you left, uh, you went to go eat your way through Europe. Yep. How did you decide to do that, and how did you plot your route? I didn't. Um, my partner at the time was from Estonia, so I based myself on Estonia. Um, I loved Scandinavian food at the time. Uh, months before, I just emailed everybody I wanted to go and eat, and just went, flew here, flew there, trained there, just eat, eat, eat everywhere. What was the balance of staging and eating? Uh, balance of staging to eating. Um, 70, 30, eating 70. Would you, would you set up the stodges before? Would you go eat there and you'd eat like five meals on the fifth meal? Like, I want to learn how to cook uh, there and plant roots. Set up the stodges okay. before, yeah, definitely. And where were the places that you staged? Uh, did three days in the Noma kitchen cleaning, uh, <laughs> cleaning <laughs> stones with seawater. Um, As one does. A good friend of mine got me into a Spanish restaurant, Mogadets, and I cut beans for five days. Uh, Le Chateaubriand in France, I cut bread for four days just the randomest jobs you can think of I've always been curious about staging because the you know in, in other industries apprenticeships can last for years and most stages are seven days five days four days can you really take away lessons from there and if so what are the type of things that you look for like what what qualifies a good stage um, you do take lessons every kitchen's different every kitchen's run different you take something from everywhere you go whether it's setting up your spoons or not using the same spoon twice or you know, changing the chopping board 15 times during service or you do learn a lot I was just there to look for food I wasn't there to look as a manager or as someone learning to develop my managerial skills or I just wanted to see how they did it how do you run the best restaurants in the world how do they do it and from a, just as a gastronomy, like gastronomy uh, position what were some of the more like the dishes or the bites that you had that were really highlighted and that still stay with you until now? Uh, the bone marrow, at the the caramel bone marrow at Noma stands out. It was a dessert, uh, beef bone marrow, and uh, it's caramelised for over thirty hours, and it just turns into pure candy. That stands out. Um, the Chateaubriand's beef dishes stand out. Unbelievable beef dishes, um, and then the vegetable base in the north of Spain really stand, stood out to me their, their vegetable productions out of this world what led you to get off the road from eating and back into the kitchen and brought you to Roots I uh, I was always going to go to Roots I knew Julio for seven years before that we worked in Hawke's Bay together but there was just the wrong time wrong place but I always knew I would end up at Roots um, he just gave me a call one day, you bought a Europe. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm running out of money. And he said, sweet, i got a job in three weeks. And I was there in three weeks. And for those of you who don't know, what is the setting? What is the makeup of the restaurant? Uh, it's a seven-table restaurant. We could sit 22 people. Um, Degustation-only restaurant. It's one of the first in New Zealand to take that leap. 
Uh, we serve five, nine and 12 courses. And it's shift serve. We have three shifts in a sommelier. So we do a lot of the serving. Um, we run in the pass. And basically, it's just an experience. It's all about the experience. The food, the food is right up there, but it's the experience. If you go to Roots, you're going for a dining experience. You're not going to eat the crayfish or you know the beef. You're going for the whole setting, the garden tours. We did courses in the garden. You'd go up and get your own honey from the beehive. It's just the culinary experience, really. And most of it is foraged, right? Uh, for put money, yeah, 90% of it's foraged. Every day we'd go out, we'd meet for a coffee at 9.30, and then we'd spend two, two and a half hours going out picking. So what was the lead time? I mean, if the if the restaurant before was a week, what was the lead time for setting up this menu? Uh, I'd finish work on a Saturday at night, um, have a good night out and wake up Sunday and start thinking about it. What time on Sunday? Oh, really late on a Sunday. Uh, um, Start thinking about a menu, uh, start seeing if we can create the menu Monday morning, start doing some of the base ice creams and getting a few things ready. And then Monday morning was just a free-for-all. The best thing about Christchurch is there's farmer's markets Friday, there's farmer's markets Sunday, and everyone's, everyone's out there to share and give knowledge where things are growing and really small community in Littleton. And from there, you were awarded three hats, the highest uh, accolade that you can get in New Zealand, and Restaurant of the Year in 2015. Yep. What led you to leave uh, Roots and kind of find your way to Sherwood? Uh, the next challenge, really. The next challenge. Um, it was time to leave Roots. It's not a place you stay in your career. Julio's really pushing you to get out there and do more, get out there and learn more, get out there and see more. Um, <laughs> And it was just time, really. The next shifts that were there, Christopher and Bob, they took over and, you know, done really well. And what were some of the lessons that you took from Roots that allowed you to start building the menu and the plan here at Sherwood? Uh, lessons took from Roots. Uh, just put your mind to it and go for it. You're always going to achieve it. And no matter what happens, you're going to achieve that goal. You know, and just keep going and going and going and going and going until you've, you have achieved it, really. Big, Julio's big on it. Well, we're going we're gonna to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to be back with uh, Fraser Brown, who's going to join us, uh, along with uh, Kane, and talk about Sherwood. It's philosophy, it's food program, it's wine program, uh, it's dirt, bike, racetrack, and all the other things that make this super special. We'll be right back on Snacky Tunes. Thank you. 
Welcome back, Fraser. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So for those, of the, for those who have not been to Queenstown, can you set the stage for Sherwood? Um, Sherwood is um, uh, a hotel situated in an alpine vista. Um, so in Queenstown itself is situated in the, in the Great Lakes district of uh, the South Island of New Zealand. So surrounded by great mountainous snow-capped mountains and big open expenses of forest um, we are the edge of uh, civilization, as you could say and beyond us is the great expanse of the the southern part of the, the island where you know it's all national park from here Sherwood itself I mean if you're after that that's that's a, you know a hotel locked inside that that moment um, it's uh, 78 rooms you know it's, it takes on a couple of hundred guests um, and uh, yeah and it was a motel from 1985. Yeah, so it was first put in place in yeah, the, the sort of mid-80s and was one of the first million-dollar uh, complexes to be put together in the, the Queenstown area. So it put a big development for Queenstown then when tourism was kind of finding its feet. Um, and since then, continued to, to luster along as, as it was and, and kind of slowly sort of ran itself quietly into the ground until the new owners came along and um, gave it a huge new boost in lease of life. Let's separate the restaurant into the, the two parts, and let's start with the, the produce. So, Kane, how can you describe the approach to sourcing the ingredients, uh, the way in which you get uh, the, the food uh, from, from the area and into the restaurant? Um, 
it's tricky. Queenstown's really tricky. Uh, we've got some really, really, really unique local growers um, who help us out a lot. But, you know, some days some stuff won't turn up. You know, some days won't turn up for three or four days, so it's, it's quite hard. But sourcing, it's quite easy. Just pick up the phone, call Julie, and ask, <laughs> ask her what she's got, really. And whatever she's got, she'll bring for us. So what is the lead time on menus here? Before it was a week, the other one was maybe like, you know, 12 hours. Um, well, we've just done a big swap out of the menu, but it's, there's so much freedom here. We can. I'm thinking of dishes to... To change. No, you're writing it down as we as we said. Tomorrow already, um, you know, there's a few things coming out of season, so it's time to start thinking of what's coming into season, what's new, what have we got abundance of at the moment. This morning we went foraging for some of the ingredients that we had tonight. How much does your foraging knowledge play into the menu here? Um, it plays a lot. I mean, we've got a beautiful garden, so we can pick a lot of our garnish. Um, I don't have to go looking for nasturtium leaves; they're growing right there. So. We're very lucky in that sense, but we're out every day. The boys are out. Um, one of the boys went down to Bluff today. He picked us up uh, two cratefuls of field mushrooms. So, you know, we're, he's bringing them back, so we dry them out for winter. But it plays a lot. You just got to know what you're looking for, really. And the growing season is not as uh, long in Queenstown as at other places. So how do you... When is the best time to get the most diverse... Uh, product here and what type of food are you cooking uh, in the winter when it's, mm. it's a lot more scarce um, so this year is really different again a really really different summer um, I think I should have we should be preserving by now but I, it's a bit early we'll wait till March start stacking up for winter a lot of mushrooms are going to play into our hands at the moment a lot of stone fruits are being preserved um, a lot of infusion of herbs with oils at the moment that we're getting really stacked up on um, but winter's, yeah, it's about bringing that summer goodness into winter, freezing a lot of it. All our current trees are frozen down at the moment. Um, blackberries next to be frozen down for winter. You know, I'd love to use them right now, but it's, it'd be a lot more special to be able to bring that summer vibe to a plate in the middle cold. Just like a little bite of sunshine. Done. You know, yeah. A bit of happiness. So. And one of the other things that's really incredible here is the bread, which you get from the People's Bread in Wanaka. How did you find them? How did you select them as your provider of probably one of the most integral parts of the, mm. the meal um. well they fit in with the locally sourced mm. I mean one of the one of the big components of, of what we're about is, is finding things as close to us as physically possible from the bread the milk you know Juliet Nevis Gardens you know that the produce if the and it's all about the shortest distance to travel, the better condition it's going to be when it gets to us. And it happens to be that, that um, Ruth and her partner have a make bread just over in Wanaka, you know, it's a 45 minute hour drive away. And, you know, it's freshly stone ground flour every day kind of thing. So there's something quite unique there. And it's right on our doorstep. So, I mean, you know, what we're about is, is capturing this doorstep and showing it to the to anyone that wants to try it. And the other side of that is the wines that you have. So many natural wines, so many biodynamic wines. How did you decide to go that route? Uh, what is the current wine scene in New Zealand? Uh, current wine scene, well, I guess you can divide it into two, two lines. You've got the ones who are natural wine believers, uh, people who believe that wines can be left to their own devices, maybe faults and flaws all intact, and to those who wish to control that experience and fine-tune that. Um, I'd have to say that... that, um, that 
the number there are a, a sort of great number of great, fantastic sort of natural wine driven restaurants now in New Zealand. Um, but there's still an old guard as well that's very much like you know, staying with those sort of classic styles. Your Chardonnay's come from certain areas, your Picapino from certain areas. Whereas you world, if the natural world movement is there are no rules, you can do what you want, you can grow things in places where they don't grow and try out new ideas. So, And what led that um, kind of philosophy to be the backbone of your, your wine menu? Um, well, the original construct for that actually comes from a gentleman called Stephen Wong. Uh, he's a master of wine here in New Zealand and has worked closely with myself and and in the directors in the past and uh, he was a driving force in saying this is something you guys should get involved in um, and his passion is something I've worked with him for many years um, at other restaurants and, and his passion there always lay in he wanted the weird and the wonderful he wanted the small and boutique he really wanted to show off the, the bespoke nature of the, the character of wines from different areas and and uh, for that we ended up with, with this backbone of, of we wanted a natural wine biodynamic or organics um, we wanted to sort of let loose some, some wines upon the public that they might not be either prepared for or expect and one of the things that I think is so ingenious is your taste wheel yeah. uh, or I don't know what that was called but that's how it was described to us where it's essentially just a wheel and it has essentially four different access points and you can yeah. plot the wines along there and it's a really amazing there's a, a bar in New York called Pouring Ribbons that is very similar for people who uh, might not know all the spirits or all the things but it kind of gives them an easy access point mm-hmm. so who developed that who came up with it Again, we have to lead back to Stephen. Stephen was the, was the driving force behind that. This was his invention, and actually for many years we worked together on the ideas of you know, what different wine lists and how could you project the information to the customer in a different way. I mean, a great way he described it was a, a menu is merely just a lens of which you allow the customer to look into what you have and, and how you focus that lens on what area you want to do it. Um, dictates what information they're going to retrieve from the information. So, so he was basically like this texture wheel, as we like to describe it, but yeah, flavor wheel in essence, um, was just another tool in essence to open up the world of wine. And most wine lists are categorized generally by their grape varieties. So, all you know, so the same old salves, all everything else, but they're not, they're not all the same. They don't all taste the same. They're not similar to each other. So here, we laid it out differently to try and expose the fact that. The Pinots on our list are actually more similar to other styles of grapes, therefore opening up the discussion for customers that if you like that Pinot, maybe you'll like this Gamay, maybe the Beaujolais in your you know, you, you start opening up their vocabulary and giving them more words um, to use and you're empowering the customer, you know, rather than shielding it away and going, I know everything and, and I, you, you know, you must learn from me, it's more like it's right there on the piece of paper, what do you want to know? One of the other things that's opened up for discussion is when you walk in here, you see a green egg as one of your cooking tools in the kitchen. And I don't know if I've ever seen that front and center. How did you decide to place that in there? What was the, if I'm coming, uh, you know, it's got to be there. It's got to be in the kitchen. And, and how is it used in the overall meal preparation? Well, I mean, it's it came at the start, you know, and the idea here was that the, the judges wanted that. They wanted that barbecue sense. They needed that that flavour, that texture, and that that reality that you get from cooking on real flames. That you know, gas and for every other means we can come up with, how fantastic can be accurate to timing and temperature. But you can't beat flame kill you know, yeah, cooking things. And and in this sense, yeah, they, they really went for it. Now to choose the green egg was, um, in essence, it's a great tool. You know, and it's got a you know, 
great standing. There's a lot of people that come in points and go, oh, I've got one or I've worked with one before. And um, yeah, I had, to, I had to sit there. So, yeah. And you also have a, um, a lot of other food programs. Uh, tell me about the weekly farmer market and how that came about and who's involved in it. Uh, weekly farmer market. So this was kind of started off the back of, I guess, um, the fact that we produce um, locally sourced organically driven produce and it's made as fresh as physically possible and of course what you've got here is a community that are you know wanting to eat this kind of food but you were just giving them the option we well, what if we had a farmer's market where we could take our producers and skip us and put them front and center in front of the audience which was our locals and go hey you guys who live here in this town here are the people that we buy our stuff from and they're just down the road you can meet them face to face so Therefore, we have to have a farmer's market. And have you found that the community has responded really well while being in touch with the farmers and that they've began to ask more questions, become more adventurous in their cooking, and the farmers themselves have brought different types of produce and began to bring mm. new ingredients to people outside of what they might normally have been used to? Definitely so. I think just doing it, um, you've seen the connections being made. You know, People who now possibly thought they were more on their own I've realised that there's actually a wider audience out there of people who are like, no, I really, I really get that, I really want that, and hey, I make this. And sort of linking up the little dots. And sometimes we get people coming in here and they're like, oh, I just grow garlic just for the sake of it in my garden. Are you interested? And you kind of sit there and go, well, of course we're interested. Like, what's it like? What's its quality? You know, and they'll sit there and be like, oh, look, it's all organic. You know, and for many times they might say, hey, it's not certified. That's a very expensive process. Mm. But for some of these people, they have a passion, and we want to go, hey, do you want to, you want to come down, show off your stuff? And if other people are interested, then you'll make connections. So, yeah, I think that there's been a real binding agent there, and um, we're, just, we're just watching it grow, which is fantastic. One of the last things I want to touch on is the carbon footprint and the sustainability uh, that weaves through the whole property, but how it really fits into the restaurant. You have a biodigester in the back. Uh, I think it's, it's in the menu items. You talk about it. What is the approach and the philosophy for being you know, as close to carbon neutral or reducing the carbon footprint within the dining and the education that goes into the dining experience? Well, I mean, what's the philosophy? I mean, I think you could go to any part of this globe and find somebody who would agree with this, that our impact on the environment is, is great and it's grave and it's massive. You know, it's, we, have to, we have to do something about it. And then the next question is how? So what do we have here is we've been gifted this opportunity to show people how you can make a change. How can you make a zero waste a landfill bar? How can you remove your waste and turn it into compost? And we can physically show people in action moments so that there's no kind of theoretical debate. It's more like, no, no, we're doing this and that's what the result is. And often they don't actually see any change in the product. And in fact, when we explain it to them, they're like, oh, really and then you can open the door to an educational experience of going well this is why uh, this is where it comes from and sometimes maybe demystify a lot of the things that people just think just appear on your front doorstep with no ability distribution centers how we execute you know shipments of produce moving around the country and then we say to them well we don't do that for example we have a keg wine program so we actively get our wine delivered from wineries to us by keg which just cuts out a massive distribution arm. And then they go, oh, that's fantastic. And then at the same time, we can say we've limited our landfill waste or recyclable glass waste by you know thousands of bottles a year. 
and then we move on to the next one and the next one and, and you know the biothermic digester is a fantastic example of a device that technically in any size you can now buy them to go into your house you know you can get them they're quite readily available and yet you know we stop throwing our waste into landfill I mean almost 50% of everything that goes into landfill nowadays is food waste you know and it, that's just it's a crying shame so what we get here at Sherwood is this opportunity to show people the end result of our labour and they can then come in and say their dining experience had a lesser impact on the environment around them. Well, I want to thank you both for making time for me today. If people want to come eat here or stay here or check it out, where can they go? Uh, website, Instagram, uh, smoke yes. signals. Yeah, share, yeah, share with Queenstown, uh, NZ. Um And yeah, just, hey, just look us up. You know, Come check us out. We're on Instagram, Facebook page as well. And um, you get, in, get involved. If you've got any good ideas as well on any front, you know, we're, we're open to everything. So, yeah. Great. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we'll be back with Rippin' Winery, who we found on the wine list here at Sherwood and decided to go out to Wanaka in an interview. Thank you guys so much. All right. Sure. Thank you very much.
This episode is brought to you by Threes Brewing, a Brooklyn-based brewery known for creating drinkable craft beers that balance complexity and simplicity with a focus on lagers, farmhouse ales, and hop-forward American ales. Threes Brewing makes beer that's good, not just interesting or different. Beer that can be enjoyed without jostling for your attention. Beer that you'll want to revisit over and over again. The brewery itself, located at 333 Douglas Street at the intersection of Brooklyn's Borum Hill, Park Slope, and Gowanus neighborhoods, is a brew pub serving beers from the Threes portfolio and other top breweries, as well as cocktails and wine. While you're there, you can grab a sandwich from the Meat Hook or coffee from 9th Street Espresso. In the evenings, look for live music shows in Tiny Montgomery and a rotating series of DJs in the main bar. The Brewery at Threes is a community space where friends can come together and strangers can become friends, or just drink Constant Disappointment IPA. Visit Threes Brewing at 333 Douglas Street in Brooklyn or their outpost in Greenpoint. Learn more at threesbrewing.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, here with Joe Mills at the Ripon Winery. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thanks for coming. Stunning setting. Yeah, it's a bit rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, everyone said you had to come here and we didn't quite understand why until we turned yeah. that corner. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning, mm. 1912. 1912. What's the history? Who founded it? So um, back in 1912, it was um, Wanaka, as it is now, did not exist. It was a service town for the high country farms, of which Ripon was one. Um, so my husband's great-grandfather, Sir Percy Sargard, bought the land back in 1912. And um, back then, it was a massive tract of farm that went all the way out to Cadrona, which is a township on the way to Queenstown. Um, and way out to the other side of what is the Wanaka Township now, out to Albert Town. Um, so that was it. It was run as a high country farm. Um, it was a self-sustaining farm. It had to be because that's what farms were and, and they remain to be. There was a cook shop. You know, everyone everyone looked after each other. It was a little community. Um, so Percy died. And um, in those days, there were death duties. So half of the family's... Um, Assets had to be paid back in taxes. Um, pretty much how we are now, we were land rich, cash flow poor. Um, the family business then was import and export and warehousing down in Dunedin, which in those days was the capital of New Zealand um, and certainly the biggest port. So um, suddenly what was a massive tract of farm in the family was suddenly massively reduced inside to, to pay for all these death duties. Um, Nick, my husband's grandmother, Billy, was able to buy back some of that land at auction, but the, um, the land itself had massively reduced in size by them. So through the years, it was import expert, and it wasn't until 1975 that you started doing wine here with Rolf. Well, that was, yeah, so Rolf, so that was, um, those were experimental vines. So Rolf, who was my father-in-law, he was a, um, a submarine lieutenant in the Second World War. He spent time in the Atlantic um, near Portugal. And um, he saw very similar soils in the Douro Valley, um, part of Portugal, um, and had this kind of light bulb moment, you know, seeing these south-facing vines as, as they are in, in the northern hemisphere, south-facing vines on very similar soils. He had this like, wow, maybe we could do this back in, um, back in Wanaka, um, which was pretty forward-thinking for the 1930s, 1940s. Yeah, I mean, it, um, New Zealand now has a wine 
uh, industry, but what was it back then or was it, did it exist? There wasn't really much. I mean, there was a little bit up north, but really um, Rolf's exposure to wine came through the family business, through that importing. They were having European wines on the table. Um, and I sh- should probably say they were in bottle, not cask, which um, in itself was quite unusual for New Zealand until really very, very recently. Um, so he'd had that moment, that kind of, I guess, that slight epiphany um, and came home after the war and went back into the family business. And then in the 1970s, he and his wife, Lois, um, moved back up to Wanaka. And, um, yep, as you say, in 1975, planted some experimental vines. And what makes an experimental vine? It's really just trial and error. It's, it's really just doing the tests. Can... Can the vine grow can this, here? Can this variety grow? Yeah. Can this variety grow? You're not doing it in a commercial capacity. So they just planted a few a few trial plants, um, and that kind of got the tick. Um, he did a bit of reading around, and then the next step, really, I guess, in the family um, story towards planting vines, because we were Angora goat farmers then. You know, mm-hmm. this is this was quite a jump. Um, the next step was to move over to France for a year and actually see if they could do the viticultural life, because it's all good and well saying you know vines might grow here but actually can we do the the slog um so they did that they moved over to Bergerac um in uh southeastern France and that got the ticks they came back and in 1982 the first commercial vines went in and how did they figure out which ones worked was that was it was it the process over those seven years where they were just trial and error, trial and error? No, it was the trial and error came from 1982, and okay. that's really where it started. So in 1982, basically no one had really planted further south of Canterbury. So, you know, Canterbury to, to central Otago, that's quite a jump. Um, so what they did is they got all they could from the nurseries up in the North Island. To Calfata was a big nursery up there. And they just planted, and people were just saying, you really, you know, should stick to, uh, Go to goats. Yeah, <laughs> or, you know, gooseberries was going to be the next big thing, God help us. So, you know, they, they took a punt and kind of said, well, we're going to try it. Um, and in the early days, we had 30 varieties in 15 rows. So you name it, we had it. And, and was it mostly in, blends? It was, it was a mix. It was, I mean, seriously, you name it, Cabernet, Merlot, Shiraz, or Syrah, um, Pinot, thank God. Otherwise, who knows what we'd be growing. <laughs> Riesling, Gewurz, Chardonnay. Semillon, um, Grunewald, no, no, sorry, not Grunewald, um, Milaturga, you know, it goes on. And where Wolf and Lois's approach be like, let's just see what works and let's yeah. just see what sells? It's, well, it's not even what sells, it's what grows. Mm. I mean, it's empirical observation. Um, around the time they were planting, you had Alan Brady in the Gibson Valley, um, so close to Queenstown. You had Vernon, Sue Burgess and Alexandra, which is about 100k that way. Um, and a woman called Annie Pinkney, who never had her own label, but she was the only one with any sort of viscultural training um you know rolf was a farmer alan was a um a journalist um verdon was a carpenter so she was the one who really provided the the knowledge and the first central otago wines weren't actually ripon or gibson valley they were central otago it was a collaborative thing um and so really it was over the 1980s and into the 90s that we started working out as the vines matured what did and didn't grow here and it was right up to 2005 which was the last time we pulled out um, vines that we didn't really feel should grow here so it's just been constant watching of the vines and I think by having a, a single property a single vineyard a single farm we've been afforded the luxury of being able to make those calls much more easily than if we were buying fruit in from lots of different vineyards. So almost a smaller footprint give you a lot more control and able mm. to grow it in a more uh, direct and focused way, as opposed to if you're going all the way back out to where the original footprint is. It's even different climates or totally. a huge extreme. You can almost and, and what we're looking at right now, is, is this what we're looking at? Are these the vines? Yep. Okay. 
For so, those who can't see, because it's radio, it's not as big of a footprint as you. It's not yeah. acres and acres and acres. No, it's, how, 30, how big it's, is it? it's 33 acres on okay. the vines. Um, we measure in hectares here, so 15 hectares, 33 acres. And then we've got probably another um, maybe 50, um, 50 acres on top of that, which is farmland. But it's that's farmland, you know, so we've, we very much focus on the land as a farm as a whole, and that comes into the way we farm with biodynamics. But in terms of vineyard, we've, we've worked out what grows best here and sticking to that. And pre-2002, yeah. when Nick kind of came back, what was the selling and how many bottles were you producing? How many cases? Um, it's probably comparable. Um, no, probably a bit more now, I suppose. But, you know, we grow between, um, and it's a massive window because of um, seasonal variation and by virtue of having this one site, you know, we're looking between 4,000 in a small year to 8,000 cases, times that by 12, so just under 100,000 bottles in a top year. Um, you know, it's it's tiny in the grand scheme of things. And the summer came super late this year, so mm. how does that affect the growing season? It's not been too far bad. I mean, it's still too early to tell. We're just going through Veraison now, which is the period when the, the grapes change colour and really start, you know, the ripening really begins. You'll, over the next few days, we'll start putting the nets on. Um, but what we're seeing, we don't irrigate at Ripon. It's part of, of what we're doing with our farming. So having a really wet spring has been really fantastic. Um, and certainly, I think, in terms of soil nutrition, that's going to work very well to the next season as well. Um, but, you know, people always ask, is this going to be a good season or is it going to be crap because we've not had summer yet? And to be honest, until until the fruit's on the sorting table and even then when the wine's in the bottle, you just don't know. I mean, you know, the marketeers out there love calling it the best vintage yet and the media love kind of doom, you know, be kind of being doom mongers about things. But you don't write it off until until it's in your glass. You and Nick both have backgrounds in yeah. wine interiors. So if you could give us a brief history of Nick's um, course and also your yep. own traversing as well. Um, so Nick, uh, well, he's... And he's third born, generation. Fourth generation, fourth generation, yeah. So we've got the fifth generation running a market in the meantime. <laughs> God. Uh, but no, fourth generation. Um, so he obviously grew up on the land. Um, they shifted up here in, in the 70s. And he and his sister's summer jobs were, were planting the vines. So, I mean... They really are kind of part and, part and parcel of this land. But um, his plan was to be a professional skier, um, and that's what he did. He was New Zealand's number one to go off to the Olympics, and in kind of a typical athlete's tragedy, um, about three months before um, the Olympics, he smashed up his knee. Um, he always hastens to add that that was because he was leading the race up at Treble Cane, you know. Of course, but he's just going so fast. Anyway, so smashed up his knee and suddenly the Olympic dream was over. Um, so he had to think about something else. So um, he shifted over to France. He retained some of his French from when they lived there when he was a kid. And um, so he went back over and kind of trained up in French um, and then got jobs in vineyards. So he was in Burgundy predominantly in Alsace for four years, um, working in vines, working in wineries, did a biodynamics course over there, but always been an organic vineyard. But then when he came home in 2002, that's when he brought the biodynamics back. Um, but he hadn't planned to come home. He thought about, you know, maybe going off to British Columbia and maybe planting vines over there, you know, conveniently close to mountains. But um, his father died in, in 2000 and at the end of 2002 or kind of mid-2002, um, Lois, next mother, called and kind of said, would you like to come home? And it, it was a big thing because he'd just had his um, visa renewed at Domendela Romani Conti, which is a, a well-known Burgundian vineyard and it's quite hard to get that kind of thing done. Um, so he kind of ammed an and then it was like, yeah, no, this is, this is the one. So he came home November 2002. 
And what is your background? Um, it's, it's a curious one. I, was, um, I did English literature at university in England, and, um, but always liked drinking. In fact, if I'm being completely honest, the reason I got into wine was because I really fancied the bar manager in our college. And uh, <laughs> he, he ran a, bar tasting, uh, a wine tasting with the local um, liquor store, and I went along and suddenly realised that I was actually really interested in wine even more than Jimbo. Um, so, yeah, I got into wine, and um, after university, I did wine exams to get into the, New- uh, the British trade and worked over there, and then just decided to come out here for a few months' experience to kind of, um, I guess, let the last piece of the jigsaw fall into place. You know, you can read about pruning till you're blue in the face in a classroom in London, but when you're suddenly out here, it's like, oh, my God, yike. Yeah, I get it. So I came out here in 02, only planning to stay for five months, um, Sorry, three and fourteen years later, toing and froing from here in Burgundy. Everyone's um, story we've met on this trip has been like, "Yeah, I just came here and I just stayed." Yeah, it really happens, and you can see why. Um, and it's been a really cool place to be. I mean, Central Otago in two thousand and three. You know, I came out here just chancing my luck in terms of finding a job, and it was still a really emerging region. Um, I'd heard about it back in England, but you know, I think I was in the right place at the right time, and just met some really really amazingly open people and that's what's incredible about the re- the region and the industry is there's always been a really it's very welcoming I think because we are you know at the bottom of the earth in the middle of nowhere you know we all do help each other and I mean I wouldn't be there if it weren't for that attitude so yeah we're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to come back and talk post 2002 turning this into a biodynamic farm the wine itself and the music festival that you throw yeah we'll be right back on snacky tunes this is where a river starts Though I know nothing could be perfect There's places we pass through On our journey through the rabbits And then it takes a turn There's some bands it goes to Fresh water to salt Now everyone controls you Nothing could ever be stopped I'll get This is where we heard her all Oh, after I implored you Oh, in this river It's a ride And it's hard to our lives Or we will be Returned to the ocean No, never thought it was wrong Yeah, 
That was just a ripper for Rippin. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. So 2002, Nick comes back and essentially turns everything over to Biodynamic. What is that process and how hard is it to take something uh, from where it was, just kind of experimental, just trying to survive, mm. to something that's super focused and has a, a large set of rules in, in its practice? Um, so I guess the um, biodynamics is um, often seen as an extension of organics. It's really working along to the principles and teachings of Rudolf Steiner, who did a series of lectures called Agriculture. Um, there's all kinds of things that freak people out because we're talking about the celestial, about the stars, about the planets. Um, we're also talking about the largest biomass in the world that we can't see, you know, the bacteria and the microlife in our soils. Anyway, so biodynamics um, looks really at the farm as a whole. Um, and you say a lot of rules. Yeah, there are and there aren't, but it's, um, it's very interpretive and it allows farmers to work with their farm, doing what's best for the farm. Some of the other regulations you get, certainly along some of the organic um, certifications is much more prescriptive saying thou shalt not do this whereas whilst there's an element of that with biodynamics every farmer you know has has the the freedom to do things that that are right for their farm um how easy was it i'd say it's pretty easy actually um you know we we planted the vines through the 1980s really that was the bulk of our plantings and into the 90s we'd been organic since the inception so really then moving forward to to biodynamics was a natural progression um I guess in, in Burgundy, um, which is where Nick studied and really got struck by biodynamics, you have, um, due to the old Napoleonic laws, you'll have one piece of land that can be owned by several different families and growers. So side by side, you might have three rows, I might have four rows, you know, Bob Random over there might have six rows. And by having those rows side by side, you can see what works, you know, because you might be a chemical farmer, I might be organic, you know, someone else might be biodynamics. So it's a very easy way to look at the health, not just of the vines, but really is the soil as well. Um, but, you know, we're going back to 2002. I think people are much more open to biodynamics and organics now. But, God, when I came out here in 03, I mean, it was... People would just be taking the piss constantly. Um, constantly. It was... Um, sorry. Uh, you know, it was, oh, my God, you know, do you dance naked around the vines at midnight? You know, do you sacrifice young virgins? And it's kind of like... It's like, we do that, but the wine's really yeah, good, too. But also, it's going to say, hey, that's just Friday night on the farm. You know, I mean, seriously, you know, but the vines. But, I mean, it's... And it got really boring just have to justify it. But, you know, this is something... This is not newfangled, new-age, modern stuff. This goes way back. You know, when I was in France, when I was working in England... You know, I was talking to a grower in 2002 about, um, about the unusual year, and they said, oh, c'est à cause des 13 lunes. It's because of the 13 moons. In certain years, you get, with the cycles, you get 13 moons instead of 12. You know, this is, you know, again, people might say it's mumbo-jumbo, but there are, there are thoughts there. And, I mean, we all know the moon has an effect on the Earth, so why not other kind of planets or, or other celestial bodies? Um, so, really, the, the hardest thing was changing mind shift. Um, and, um, and kind of battling cynics. I mean, ultimately, um, ultimately it was, um, you know, it's like, well, this is, this is what's best for the land. I mean, we bottle our wines under court. Most people at the time are bottling under screw cap. You know, it's, why well, should we justify what just feels right? And that's the thing with biodynamics. It, it feels good. It feels right. So let's talk about the wine itself. Yeah. So you said, thankfully, you planted Pinot Noir. And by default, you have some yeah. of the oldest vines yeah. in the region. So what is the current makeup of the Ripon uh, wine? So 55% of our vines are Pinot. 
Um, then we have Riesling, which would be our second largest planting. Maybe, oh God, I'm not very good on numbers. I know, let's say 25%, something like that. Gewürz, um, Sauvignon Blanc, Ostiner, and a tiny bit of Gamay. Um, as we've pulled out over the, um, over the years, we've pulled out other varieties. We've replanted with Pinot, Riesling, and Gewürz. They're really the ones that over the years have, I guess, put their hands up and said, you know, we, we deserve to be here. Um, we're a cooler climate. We're on beautiful schist soil, which is a, a metamorphic, very silica heavy, light reflective, a uh, refractive, sorry, rock. Um, and so these are the ones that are saying, plant me. You know, a lot of people in New Zealand, it's awesome to see in central Otago, people are going from a very small planting of maybe Pinot and then maybe Pinot Gris or, or Riesling, and suddenly you're getting all these crazy varieties. You know, Mount Edward's planting Green of you know, and Amborino and, and Pinot Blanc, and other people are, are trialling some of the Spanish varieties, which is amazing. We've kind of already done that trial as far as we're concerned, so we're, we're kind of honing back, um, but it's amazing to see what other people are pushing out there. And what is, in 2017, the current state of uh, Central Otago wine country? It's awesome. It's really, really good. I think what we're seeing is um, uh, you get waves in wine. Sorry, I jump around a lot. But you get waves in wine. You get In any wine region, you get the pioneers. You get the people who are coming here and, and then kind of founding you know, laying the foundations for an industry. You then get the professionals, the kind of second wave, the professional winemakers coming in. They actually know what they're doing instead of everyone else who's just feeling their way. Then you get the word third wave, which is like, I guess, the lifestylers, you know, the retired <laughs> farmers, the... Um, uh, the dentists, the doctors, the lawyers. Sometimes it's people who are sitting on their, um, you know, their balcony, maybe in Waiheke Island, maybe in Sydney, you know, maybe even in California somewhere. And they're drinking a you know, glass of Pinot Noir and they like the idea of having their own vineyard. And that's awesome, but you've got to be committed to it. And so around kind of the early 2000s, you were seeing a lot of those plantings. Um, some of them have survived. Some of them realized that actually, if you did want to charge $45, which at the time, was an expensive bottle of New Zealand Pinot Noir. I mean, we're probably talking more like 55 now. You, you actually need to look after your vines and you can't just put Central Otago on the label and expect people just to, to pay that. Um, so I think over the period of, I guess, um, after the GFC, you know, there was a natural kind of um, clean-up maybe, you know, people selling up, um, people realising this was actually really hard work. You know, before you can even sell a bottle of wine you've got three four years of growing grapes of capital before you're actually going to produce a bottle of wine so it's you don't jump into it you know unless you're really committed then you get what's the outsiders coming in so wineries from other regions um, buying into the region they realize the potential of central otago or the value of central otago um, and so you'll get out of towners with their central otago pinot um, and now we're seeing people like um, lvmh who own cloudy bay they've bought into the region so that's suddenly that's like the fifth wave which no one really saw coming and that suddenly takes central otago to a whole new audience um so that's kind of the evolution of central but i guess in terms of the health of the industry it's it's great you know people the vines are maturing you know for a long time people say oh central otago is all about fruit bombs well fruit fruits are given i mean apart from the else <laughs> this is a great we're talking about you know but i think as, as the vines mature you are getting a bit more you're getting more texture, you're getting more structure, you're getting more site specificity, what the French would talk about, terroir, a, pl- a sense of place. Um, and you're getting wine growers who perhaps are happy just to let the wines talk for themselves rather than trying to impose winemaker ego on it, saying, you know, this is, you know, this is my stamp. No, this, this is the vineyard, this is the site. Um, and also you are getting people who realise 
that you only get this one chance. You know, we, we, at Ripon, we talk about being custodians, and that's why we're growing grapes right now. We've been on the land for four generations. I, I mentioned our fifth. You know, we've, we've got our moment, and we want to do it right. And so for us, that's biodynamics. And I think other people are realising that, you know, perhaps... Um, you know, contributing to Monsanto's coffers might not be the best way to do it. You know, that really actually looking after the land, you know, organics, biodynamics, just, just um, you know, inter-row plantings, you know, all these kind of things. So actually giving back to the land is, is really important and uh, long may that last. One of the other things that you do for giving back is you throw a music festival. Yeah. How did that come about? When did it start? Is it called Rippers or Rippin'? Um, it's, it's not, it should be. It's the Rippin' Festival. Um, so it's every other year. Um, it's New Zealand music only. So Rolf and Lois um, established it with um, a local music teacher at the local high school. She wanted it as a way of showcasing local talent. So that was back in 96, our first one. And then it's um, in the early days, it was every year. And then it got bigger and bigger. And it's been every other year since. Um, it's only New Zealand music. It's over the course of a day. We've got our natural amphitheatre outside. You can imagine all these um, bands that are used to playing in scungy venues. I mean, they're no longer, at least they're no longer smoky, but, you know, these scungy, sweaty venues. And they come here, and it's, it's in February, and you've got 5,000 people rocking out in the sun. It's just like, what's, what's not to love about it? And is backstage wine only? or if they... it's, it's, it's all ripping, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, then, and so when is the next one? Did... Um, we're on a bit of a hold at the moment. Um, just the impact of 5,000 people on the land, just it's, it takes its toll. Um, so what we're doing is we're trying to concentrate a lot more on smaller events, um, again, predominantly New Zealand, um, but using, using the hall that we have here. So, you know, keeping it to kind of 300, 400 people. Um, we are looking at a possibility of something outside soon, but it's, um, it's an amazing thing to have, and we're going to keep on supporting New Zealand music. But just it, you can imagine that five thousand people pounding the land is um, it's, it's a quite a big thing. Yeah. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for making time for Pleasure. us today. Thanks for um, having me. Hopefully, this will be here for five generations. Do any of the kids are they old enough to show interest in it yet? Or are they picking um, grapes? There's any picking grapes, eating them, and they're drinking it, um, tasting it. I should say they're yeah. all under ten. So, um, I mean, who knows? I think you know all we can do is really get them into the land and you know, feeling connected to the land. If we try and say, you're going to be a wine grower, they're going to end up being a pilot or if my five-year-old has his way, a rock star. But, um, you know, I think so long as they have an inherent love for the land, I think that's the best possible way to to hope that they can um, keep on going through to the next generation. Amazing. So where can people find you uh, online? Can they order it to the States? Yeah, we're um, www.rippon.co.nz. Um, we are in the States as well. Um, our distributor information is on our website, K&L in California take our wine um, Sherry Lehman and um, many liquor stores near you and if not go and ask for it well thank you so much Joe thank you to the team at Sherwood we're going to play one more ripper to take this episode out Uh, thanks for listening to a very special New Zealand episode of Snacky Tunes and we'll be back next week with a brand new one
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.